0: Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash The Economist to get started. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds.
1: Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Major urban centers worldwide were reduced to ghost towns in the midst of last year's lockdowns. That was assumed to be temporary, but as the world tentatively reopens for business, a more permanent change to cities seems to be settling in. And an ancient burial site in Finland threw up a mystery in 1968. Did the remains belong to a man or a woman? A new study complicates the answer to that question and some entrenched ideas about gender roles in the deep past. But first... One after another, America's Republican governors are speaking out against the vaccination mandates put in place by President Joe Biden last week. Florida's governor, Ron DeSantis, reckons it's a legislative end run.
0: When you have a president like Biden issuing unconstitutional edicts against the American people, uh, we have a responsibility to stand up for the Constitution and to fight back, and we are doing that in the state of Florida.
1: South Dakota's Christy Noem agrees.
2: This is not a power that is delegated to the federal government. This is a power for states to decide. In South Dakota, we're going to be free, and we're going to make sure that we don't overstep our authority.
1: The mandates will affect 100 million Americans, about a third of whom have had no jabs at all, a demographic that Mr. Biden has singled out.
3: My message to unvaccinated Americans is this. What more is there to wait for? What more do you need to see? We've been patient, but our patience is wearing thin. And your refusal has cost all of us.
1: America has just fallen into last place among the G7 countries in terms of vaccination rates. Even with local hospitals, particularly in the South, nearing capacity, the will to get jabbed isn't increasing. And there seems to be plenty of will to fight Mr. Biden on his mandates.
4: I think the fact is that President Biden has felt the tide of the pandemic hasn't turned and this is a necessary measure.
1: Kenneth Werner writes
4: about American affairs for The Economist. He really didn't want to do this. He said in December that he wouldn't force anyone to get the job.
3: I don't think it should be mandatory. I wouldn't demand to be mandatory, but I would do everything in my power as a President of the United States to encourage people to do the
4: right thing, and when they do it, demonstrate that it matters. And the White House press secretary said as recently as July that the president's position hadn't changed on vaccine mandates.
3: And That's not the role of the federal government. Um, that is the role that institutions, private sector entities, uh, and others may take.
4: But the facts on the ground have changed. The spread of the Delta variant has sent cases surging. So President Biden feels this mandate is necessary now.
1: So who is actually covered by these mandates?
4: The mandates cover about two-thirds of the American workforce. The first mandate is that employees of the federal government's executive branch and contractors who do business with it will have to get vaccinated. The second is that workers at healthcare facilities that get government funding will have to get vaccinated. And the last is really the most impactful. Joe Biden ordered the Occupational Safety and Health Administration to issue a rule requiring firms with 100 employees or more to mandate vaccines for their employees or to require that they submit to weekly testing.
1: So how is it that the administration was able to impose such a sweeping mandate so swiftly?
4: So normally a rule like this would take months or years to implement, but there is an exception. OSHA can issue what's called an emergency temporary standard, That bypasses the normal standard setting process. And in order to implement one of these rules, OSHA has to show that workers face grave danger. But that standard hasn't really been defined by Congress. These emergency temporary standards, they're very rare. Only a handful have ever been implemented. And most of them have been challenged in the courts, and four were fully invalidated through court challenges.
1: So the agency OSHA has not tried to put too many of these things through and four of them have been eventually invalidated. I mean, what prospects for this one?
4: This rule will definitely face legal challenges. The Supreme Court has looked at vaccine mandates before. In 1905, a man challenged a local ordinance in the state of Massachusetts that required people to get the smallpox vaccine or pay a fine. And he argued that that was an infringement on his personal liberty, and the court rejected that argument. Recently, a university in Indiana imposed a vaccine mandate on students, and the lower court cited that precedent from 1905 to uphold the university's vaccine mandate. Amy Coney Barrett, who's one of the Supreme Court justices, she let that ruling stand, that ruling from the lower court stand. So the Supreme Court has clearly said that vaccine mandates aren't an infringement on personal liberty. So I think the challenges will argue that the federal government and OSHA in particular don't have the authority, that Congress didn't delegate this authority, and it hasn't shown that workers face a grave danger. So
1: that's if things get to the Supreme Court, but where will the initial legal challenges come from, do you
4: think? So the parties really most affected by these mandates are employees and companies, and so they're likely to challenge it. But already, lots of Republican state governors have said that they're going to take Joe Biden to court over this, and they've used really forceful language. Brian Kemp, the governor of Georgia, called the mandates blatantly unlawful. Henry McMaster of South Carolina said, we will fight them to the gates of hell, And the governor of Arkansas, Asa Hutchinson, said yesterday that these vaccine mandates would harden people's resistance towards getting the vaccine. This is a very serious, deadly virus, and uh, we're all together in trying
1: to get an increased level of vaccination out in the population. Uh, The problem is that I'm trying to overcome resistance, but the president's actions
4: in a mandate Hardens the resistance to all of these challenges in court. Joe Biden has replied. He is going to vigorously defend these mandates. Have at it. Look, I am so
3: disappointed that uh, particularly some of uh, Republican governors have been so cavalier with the health of their communities. This is this is we're playing for real here.
1: But the reaction of the Arkansas governor, you mentioned that this will only harden the attitudes of people who were reluctant to get vaccinated in the first place, I think is a fair criticism. I mean, will this policy in the round work?
4: Yeah, I think it's very likely that this increases polarization around the issue. But I think it will also push up vaccination rates a bit. It will probably give cover to companies that hadn't yet put in vaccine mandates. Maybe they had feared employee pushback but now they can kind of safely do it and say the requirement comes from the federal government. There's still probably about 30 million people covered in this mandate who haven't gotten vaccinated. It's possible that a lot of the vaccine holdouts are merely hesitant rather than outright resistant. Surely some of those people will get vaccinated because of this. So whether or not these vaccine mandates actually survive in the courts, Joe Biden will have accomplished some of his goal.
1: Kenneth, thank you very much for joining us.
4: Thanks for having me.
0: You've seen the headlines. Bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, we took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed in this century. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash The Economist to get started. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash Bonds. Midtown
1: Manhattan in 2019 sounded like every other major metropolis, buzzing with office and service workers, tourists, locals. Six months later, it sounded like this. As with just about every other major metropolis, a COVID 19 lockdown had killed the buzz. Many expected that, in time, cities' hearts would beat as they did before. But that doesn't seem to be happening.
2: So before the pandemic, cities seemed invincible. Economic, cultural, political activity was concentrating in a very small number of geographical areas. Callum Williams
1: is a senior economics writer for The Economist.
2: And then the pandemic came along and changed all that. Now, what people thought was going to be a temporary blip in a kind of inexorable rise of cities, looks like it might be becoming something a little more permanent. How
1: do we know that that's happening?
2: We've looked at a number of different data sources, including from Google, which has very good data on mobility to different shops and workplaces and and transit stations and all that kind of stuff. So we compiled all of that data into what we're calling the Exodus Index, which basically measures the difference between what's going on nationally and then what's going on in a really big city. And really, wherever you look in the rich world, either in Asia, Europe, North America, there's a very clear dividing line between what's going on in the country as a whole, and then what's going on in cities. And specifically, cities are seriously lagging behind the general economic recovery that we're now seeing across the rich world.
1: And and why is that? Is it just because cities show up where people aren't going to work in, in such a dense way?
2: Well, this is the million dollar question. So there's sort of negative and positive ways of looking at it. I suppose the sort of more gloomy sort of way of looking at it is to say that people are still very scared of the Delta variant, and you do clearly see in recent weeks as fears of Delta have have increased that cities have become even less densely populated. I think that there are there are some other potentially more positive spins uh, on the on the data. One is that what companies have realised is that remote work can work better than they might have thought. A year ago. And that means that they simply don't need to have as many people uh, in the office as before.
1: But rich world economies broadly are are kind of on a tear here. I mean, where is all of that economic activity going?
2: It's true that the very densest urban areas are struggling, but what you are seeing is an amazing boom in the smaller cities and also in the suburbs. So you can see this, for instance, where housing construction is taking place, housing construction in the US in in suburbs is absolutely booming. In the UK, you're seeing pretty strong economic growth in suburbs, even as the number of jobs nationwide is still down. So in a sense, the suburbs are compensating for what's going on in the densest urban areas.
1: And so is that a, a, a good thing? Is that a bad thing? Is that a neutral thing?
2: So this is the sort of second million dollar question.
1: I stand to win a couple of million dollars here.
2: Yeah, well, billions, trillions even. There are basically two concerns that economists have. One is that when there are fewer people in cities, there will be less demand for sushi shops and sandwich shops and dry cleaning shops and all the other kind of things that exist to benefit office workers. So this means that unemployment might be a bit higher. That's one concern. The second concern is to do with productivity and innovation. The idea is that if you have fewer people in cities, then you have fewer people that are kind of bouncing off each other and learning from each other. And that will, in some sense, hit innovation and that will ultimately hit productivity growth and living standards. So there is an argument to say that if cities are not so vibrant, that's actually bad for everyone.
1: Well, we've spoken on the show before about the the same kind of dynamic happening within offices and the merits of, of trying to get back in those. This is kind of that same idea, but writ on city scale.
2: It is. And so the question is, the decisions that individual companies make have an impact on the economy as a whole. But I think here is where it gets a bit subtle, because there is good evidence now that a situation where everybody is permanently working from home and, and rarely, if ever, goes into the office is probably not good for innovation, idea generation, productivity growth, all that kind of stuff. The thing is, is that that's a bit of a straw man in a sense, because very few companies are actually proposing that this is the way they're going to structure themselves going forward what we do have is a situation of hybrid work, which is obviously familiar to everybody. The evidence that's coming out on that suggests that this could actually be better than the situation before the pandemic. And basically, that's because you can kind of have a more efficient division of labor for each individual worker between, on the one hand, the kind of tasks that require deep, focused concentration and you can do those on the days you're working at home when you're not being distracted by your co-workers. And then on the other, the kind of more collaborative tasks, which is where the new ideas might come from. So there's a, there's a kind of optimistic spin here on the, on the sort of decline of the dominance of the city.
1: We are, though, still in the middle of a great deal of change. Do you think that these trends point to a, a permanent state of things?
2: I think to a degree, Yes. It seems so unlikely to me that we'll go back to a situation where people are working five days in the office. Yes, that will happen in some companies, but I think in most office based companies, that won't happen. So I think the big challenge now is, is how cities respond. And there are kind of one of two options here. One is that cities don't change and that you're left with a great surplus of empty commercial property and rather moribund downtown city centres. The other option, which there is some evidence of this happening already, is that cities kind of say to themselves, okay, our old model was attracting a bunch of commercial tenants and our new model is going to be attracting more residents and doing what we can to improve quality of life. So for instance, you're seeing the beginning of a trend which is towards making it easier to convert commercial property, which is now clearly oversupplied, into residential property, which is clearly undersupplied in lots of cities. So you could have a situation where land use in cities becomes slightly more balanced. It could all work out quite well, actually.
1: Callum, thanks very much for your time. Thanks, Jason. For more on how the pandemic is transforming the world's cities, listen to Money Talks, our sister show on business, finance, and economics. My colleagues speak with Edward Glazer, Chair of Economics at Harvard University and author of Survival of the City.
2: If you're gonna define cities as the absence of physical space between people, then the social distancing that became ubiquitous after, let's say, March 20, was just the rapid-fire de-urbanization of the world.
1: Look for Money Talks wherever fine podcasts are sold and traded. In 1968, archaeologists in Finland uncovered an ancient burial site near the town of Hattula, dating from around the year 1100. Alongside the skeleton were two swords and a knife in a sheath, what you'd expect in the grave of a man of influence, But amid the degraded bones were brooches and woolen clothes more typical of women of the day. Bringing modern science to bear on the remains suggests a surprising new interpretation of ancient attitudes toward gender roles.
5: It got people asking the question, was this some sort of queen, a female chieftain, or just a wife of a male ruler? Matt Kaplan is a science correspondent for The Economist. Whoever it was, they were clearly of high status. And the media went nuts with it back in the day, saying, well, this near Viking culture, they were called finnic they had a female ruler. But no one could really be sure, because it's very difficult to discern whether or not the bones of somebody are male or female. Why is that? When you die, your bones are pretty identifiably male, if they are compared to a typical female of this day and age. But the problem is you can get big females and you can get small males. And when you're comparing blindly way back in time, especially with bones that have deteriorated really badly, it gets harder and harder to be sure. DNA testing wasn't available back in the 1960s, but DNA testing has become easier to deal with. And so this team of researchers out of Finland and Germany said, you know what, let's re-examine this case. Let's take a look at what's inside those bones and try to work out whether or not the DNA tells us if it's a male or a female.
1: In the sense that the researchers went looking for sex chromosomes.
5: Yeah, that's exactly it. In general, if you are male, you have an X chromosome and a Y chromosome. If you are female, you have two X chromosomes. And so these researchers speculated that if we find Y chromosomes in there, we know that this person was male. The thing is, it didn't work out that way. They found Y chromosomes, but they had an awful lot of X chromosomes compared to the number of Y chromosomes that they had. That led them to think, okay, is our sample badly contaminated or messed up? But they thought what they're seeing actually is someone who had XXY.
1: And what does that mean? What happens to a person with XX and Y chromosomes?
5: It's called Klinefelter syndrome. And it's completely survivable. People who have it live normal, healthy lives. They tend to have small genitalia. They will have a penis. They'll have reduced body hair, though. And upon reaching puberty, they often develop breasts. So they're kind of in between in terms of physical characteristics and in terms of how they identify. We know people with Klinefelter syndrome today frequently identify as non-binary. So the researchers speculate that in fact the person that was buried here was viewed as a mix of genders, which explains why they've got a sword as well as female
1: jewelry. So what does that tell you then about this individual and the conditions of their burial?
5: We have a long history looking at the Vikings and the Finnic culture as having very male-dominated societies. We would just assume that such societies would take a dim view of somebody who was born male but lacking a lot of particularly masculine traits. And the fact that this person is of high status, or at least buried in a high status burial, leads us to question whether or not that was really the way things were. Maybe their family was powerful enough for their sexual nonconformity to not really matter, or it's possible that mythology played a part. We know from the myths of Odin and Loki and Thor that Odin himself was quite changeable. He would alter his form, changing gender. And it is conceivable that cultures that were around at the time, including the Finnic culture, that they viewed someone who was both male and female as having considerable power and possibly being even supernatural themselves. So that may very well be what we're seeing in this grave. Thanks very much for your time, Matt. My pleasure, Jason.
0: Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash The Economist to get started. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds.